Hello, hello. It's Chicken Hill with GRC Academy. I'm here with Mr. Joe Loomis. Joe, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you today, Jacob? Doing very well. Thank you for coming on. Can you tell us about your background and your experience and what you do today? I work for my own company, Sucrebus Incorporated. We perform security assessments for typically oil and gas companies. And I also do technology evaluations for vendors of control systems to understand how to properly implement their systems in a secure way. Hmm, that's fascinating. How did you get into cybersecurity? It's been a while. I, I started, I think in 2008, I started with the smart meters. So so that meter actually on the side of your home that measures your power usage. They used okay. to send people around that would measure that reading every month to calculate your bill. And then they started networking them and there was opportunities for security issues, particularly when they're networked together and that sort of thing. And started with smart meters, the AMI, and then that quickly expanded to other control systems, also home automation systems, medical devices, infotainment systems and vehicles. I got a lot of hardware experience, embedded system experience, and I did that for a number of years. And then I went off on my own and started my own company, Sucrebus Incorporated. And I've been doing that for about seven years now. We focus in the oil and gas, small to medium-sized businesses doing security assessments, really trying to be part of their security programs there. That's really fascinating. You mentioned a term called AMI. Can you tell us what that means? Advanced metering infrastructure. And it's just the term used for those meters. So it starts with the device on the side of your home, but then the information is aggregated. It's using different communication protocols. But ultimately, it goes back to power companies and the servers there that they're collecting data. And then, and then there's also control. And, and you know, that point security was very important was that the utilities wanted the ability to actually turn off people's power mm. remotely. And so mm -hmm. that really changed the threat landscape for them once they wanted that capability. And all that was to, you know, reduce costs ultimately. They don't have to send a truck out to like turn on and off someone's power. They can just do it remotely. That's very interesting. Can you talk to us about why oil and gas is important in today's age? It's considered critical infrastructure. That means that, you know, if we were to go to war, it's a capability that we want to have. And it's something that our adversaries would not want us to have. And that's because a lot of things are dependent on oil and gas, not just your vehicles, but heating, those homes, you know, manufacturing, even building the roads relies on oil and gas. And so it's a huge part of our necessity to really be able to protect the U.S. And that's a big reason why it's important. Can you talk about the importance of keeping the infrastructure in line and everything going smooth? Because I think there's a just-in-time deliverability aspect to it, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so there's not a lot of excess capacity. In a lot of situations, you know, if a pipeline goes down, prices go up. If a refinery goes down, prices go up. If countries go to war, prices go up. And I've experienced it myself where there's been quote unquote run on gas and people run out of gas. And it's because the systems are, you know, optimized to be just in time, which is what we'll deliver today, what you're going to need for tomorrow. And if for whatever reason, people want to stockpile it or whatever, then they, it runs out and, you know, it takes a week or two for things to recover, but it makes the impact of particularly like a cyber attack much more tangible because there isn't any sort of way to really recover. 
That's interesting. Can you describe what oil and gas OT actually looks like? Because when I think about it, I think about the refineries you see out in the middle of the ocean or whatever. What does it actually look like? So certainly those refineries out in the ocean are part of it, but I compare it to IT a lot. People are very familiar, I think, with an IT network where you have computers, it runs your business, there's printers, all that sort of thing. And OT you know, it's another network. It's got sensors, it has devices, it has computers controlling embedded systems, controlling things. And it's, you know, used to control the pumps, the valves, all that, you know, like in a pipeline to move product around. And the difference is that their whole goal is really to operate. So they want the system to be operating continuously. Mm -hmm. If you know about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, that would be availability. Mm -hmm. and, and then integrity and then confidentiality. Whereas typically when you're, you know, on an IT network, it's confidentiality, integrity, then availability. So it's very easy to reboot a computer on an IT network, but you know, you schedule downtime for flights. In a lot of cases, there may even be backup control systems, like a whole other system that's ready to go in case something happens because availability mm -hmm. is so important mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. situation. What types of different sites are there? There's refineries, there's pipelines, there's control centers, there's backup control centers, there's terminals. So like a terminal is where the trucks, like you see those big tanker trucks coming up to deliver stuff at the gas station. You know, that's a terminal. Those are the ones are tank farms and that's where there's some storage locally for things. Those are the ones that I'm, I'm most familiar with and, and mm -hmm. work with. Got it. How does OT provide benefits to the oil and gas industry? It's a way for them to really segment out their operational side of things from their business side. There's this idea of IT and OT convergence. You know, the lines getting blurrier and blurrier now between the two, because they're all businesses. My, you know, slogan for the kinds of operate and be secure. They have to operate to make money and being secure is part of that. It's always about operating more efficiently. And so that's where like that convergence really helps because that data is being moved and helps them make better business decisions and inform yeah. business decisions. Yeah. Fascinating. What aspects of cybersecurity are important to oil and gas provider? You mentioned availability is really key. Keeping yeah. The systems operating. Can you talk about that? You know, a lot of the companies that I work with, I usually come in, either they've, they've done a recent upgrade. And so they want to know what their, you know, risk profile looks like at that point, or they've acquired a new to them, but it's an old asset. So they're not exactly sure in a lot of cases what they've actually bought. And so like, I'll come in and a big part of that is asset identification, understanding what's on the network, what needs to be secure, and then, you know, understanding what their risks are with what they need to, to operate. And that's vulnerabilities in their system systems, open ports, applications they're using, firewall configurations, you know, it just goes on and on all the things that could potentially be leveraged in an attack against them. So I try and come in and look at all those sorts of things mm -hmm. and let them know their risk profile and give them recommendations to how they can, you know, improve their security posture. Is there a lot of legacy equipment out there in oil and gas? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it is. If it's not broke, they really don't want to touch it. You know, I remember one of the first times I was at a terminal, that's something that really kind of hit home to me is we're there and they're operating. And like, I remember I was in a building and you just hear the trucks pull up every five minutes. You hear the air brakes, the building shaking a little bit, the engines, they have eight rows and there's just trucks coming nonstop. There's people coming in and out. It's easy for us to look at something and say, oh, like could have been a cyber attack. But you know, most of the time what's going on, it's just, these guys are keeping that stuff running and it's easy to forget that. That's something to just be aware of. It's, that's how yes. it is. 
Yeah, I think that's a common problem throughout multiple industries. Several months ago, there was the FAA incident where they had to ground all these flights. I don't know if this was the impact, but there was a system in there that was so old. It took, I think, 30 to 40 minutes just to restart. <laughs> yeah. Modernization would be a great thing, but it's a challenge getting there, I'm sure. The devices are expensive, even like a thermometer to measure the temperature of stuff, but that's all explosion proof. They're very expensive, even on eBay, if you want to buy them already used and yeah. play with. The engineering's at a whole different level. That's because it's a dangerous environment and they take safety very seriously. And so they have to have that kind of equipment in, in those places. I feel like over the last 10 years, there's been a shift, at least in some areas, on cybersecurity and cybersecurity culture. Have you seen the same thing in oil and gas? Oh, yeah. Like you said, all the industries that I've worked in. When I first started out, it was always we'd go in and they'd be like, well, I don't think that's real. Like, why should we be worried about that? It's nothing's ever happened. And now like, they have budgets and they have to make just a decision on where they want to allocate that budget. Mm -hmm. And so there is that dedication. I think having good cybersecurity is good business now. And to really operate, you need to have that addressed. Can you talk to us about important design aspects in OT and oil and gas? I think one of the, the more popular approaches right now is this idea of what's called defense in depth. And that's mm -hmm. to create multiple layers of security so that if an adversary wants to get in, they got to go through multiple layers to, to get access to something. And by going through multiple layers, there's ways to, you know, detect them, minimize their impact, all those sorts of things. But also too, it, it works in reverse. If they want to get information out, they also have to go through multiple layers too. And, so, and that's something that I've seen is a change in the industry. Used to be a lot of my customers were really focused a lot on the perimeter. So have strong firewalls, we'll just keep them out. This idea of air gap, and, and now it's just defense in depth. Particularly for in the oil and gas industry, one of the, the architectures for that is, is Purdue model, which helps mm. break up each layer of the operating layer into multiple levels. I think one of the things there that really I try to reinforce with a lot of my customers, particularly with this ITOT convergence that we talked about, was this idea of having a DMZ. And so that fits in between that IT side that was about confidentiality and integrity and availability and the OT side, which is the availability, integrity, and then confidentiality. And, and the DMZ is just a buffer network. The OT talks to the network through a firewall and the IT talks through a different firewall. And so that helps. In the case of the Colonial Pipeline, their IT network was attacked by ransomware. Mm -hmm. And I think that the term they use was abundance of caution. They had to shut down their OT side. And it's because they weren't sure that the ransomware was going to impact that. They couldn't separate yeah. the two. And so like something like the DMZ could have helped in that situation. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. At the organizational level, has there also been a shift in cybersecurity culture and why? So yeah, definitely there's a shift. The board can be held responsible in a lot of situations for things that, that go bad, and they should be. Cybersecurity, particularly with the attacks like Colonial Pipeline, but even going so far back as like Stuxnet, you know, Stuxnet was a true cyber weapon. If you're able to do, you know, a targeted sort of approach to, you know, prevent somebody from operating like Stuxnet, and then, you know, more recently, Trisis, which is this idea of attacking a safety system. Talked a little bit about OT networks and how they're used to operate a pipeline, but there's also another network, a safety network that is there monitoring the operation of that pipeline and ensuring that it's always safe. And if it's not, then it, it shuts it down in a safe way. The only reason to really attack a safety system is if you want to hurt people. Safety is very important. You know, if you go to like a terminal, you got to wear PPE, they call it personal protective equipment. You know, it's hard hat, seal toe boots, flame resistant clothing. 
all those sorts of things to protect you. And so they take safety very seriously. But now there's a cyber attack that attacks the safety system. Then if you really want to keep safety at a forefront, then you got to bring cybersecurity along with it. Awesome. What GRC standards and frameworks apply in the oil and gas industry? Yeah, there's a bunch. After Colonial, there's these TSA directives. Uh, you know, a lot of this falls under DHS. There's, you know, the NIST cybersecurity framework. There's API 1164 that I use a lot. What is API 1164? So that's the American Petroleum Institute and what's their recommendations for cybersecurity. There's a lot of overlap. I was going to say the other one is 62443, which talks about what it looks like to have a secure system. And a security program is really what they talk about, continuous improvement. And I think what, one thing I really liked about it is that is it, it really emphasizes the point that security is a journey. It's not a destination. A lot of people think, oh, if I just do these sorts of things, I'll be secure. We'll spend the money. We'll be done. We'll be secure until we have to do an upgrade. But it's, mm -hmm. it's a continuous journey. The threat will evolve. You know, an yeah. adversary, usually they can find a way if they're motivated. There's an imbalance there too. You're talking nation states, which have essentially a limited budget to a private company that's trying to maximize their profits. DHS and, and all those sorts of things. They, they're, they're doing what they can to kind of shore that up. It can be very overwhelming at first. Where do I start? And so that, I think a lot of that, that can really help with that. Yes. You had mentioned the Purdue model. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's been around for a while. What you want to do is you want to keep things that are similar kind of on their own network. It's a lot about network segmentation and then having firewalls and very clear, fine ways to communicate between each level. Mm -hmm. It's a good starting point. And then the challenges arrive now with virtualization. You know, we yes. can virtualize all these things, get more and more complicated. You know, it's much better to have these, that's network segmentation, these levels than a flat network where everything can just talk to everything at wherever it wants anytime because you're really relying on that perimeter, keeping people out. But once they're in, they got access to everything. You know, it's not a perfect model. It can be a very expensive model to implement, mm. particularly if you want dedicated hardware for everything, because there's also risks when you virtualize things like crossover and stuff like that. So mm. it's all trade-offs. I usually always try and start with that and compare an architecture to that and point out the risks associated with any sort of compromises like a customer might. Let's talk about collaborating with the organization that you're trying to help secure. Because in my world, I deal with cybersecurity and information security, and you have to implement into the business processes to effectively maintain security across the organization. How does it work in the OT world? You know, I can only speak to the customers I work with. In the beginning, it was a very adversarial kind of like I was going to come in there and point out all their mistakes and make them look bad. But now it's really a collaborative sort of environment. I like to have their tech guys with me. I explain what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. I show them results. There's a lot of communication. I, I try to actually be part of their team because those guys have a lot to do already. And so if I'm coming in, I'm, I'm trying to help them. I want to make their job easier. I want to make them look good. You know, it's not just pointing out the risks that they may be facing and, you know, some of the things like that, but also what they've been doing right. And I think that's overlooked a lot. And that's really where, in my mind, like a security assessment really about. It's about finding all the good stuff and then also the opportunities for improvement and explaining why and communicating that. It's very easy for tech people to always talk tech, but there's also, you know, management and C-level. They don't understand is, is a thousand vulnerabilities bad or good. I don't know. You know, is it, is it reasonable to get it down to zero? All those sorts of things. They don't know any of that. And it's important to not just find the results, but also I think 
understand like, as part of a bigger picture, what does that really mean? And, mm-hmm. and to be able to communicate that to dolphin layers within a company. Can you tell us how you assess risks and perform risk assessments? Because a lot of times in IT, we have a vulnerability. Yeah. We have a CVSS that aligns with that. And then we have environmental factors that we can plug in and it gives us a score. Yeah. And then you have ex- exploitability as well, factors that can come into that. How do you perform risk assessments in the OT world? Yeah. So it's very similar. Usually my window is very small when I come in to do an assessment because uh, unless they have a backup and even a lot of times they don't want to be running on the backup and I have a limited time. I'd say 80% of it is just collecting data. I just think what ports are open, what vulnerabilities might be there, what's the patching lever, what applications are on systems, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Evaluate the architecture a lot. I like mm-hmm. to review firewall configurations, access control, group policies. I like to think that I could rebuild their network if I had to. And so you try and look and get a complete picture of where they're at. There's the cover side of it. And then I think about is the depth. And that's where like the time constraints really come into play. None of what I do really zero knowledge. And, you know, I'm not trying to crack passwords. I may try to fall passwords and stuff like that. But then I also try and take a step back and really try and understand, is there a bigger pattern here to what's going on? Why weren't these patches applied? How did this application get on this system? Particularly a lot of my customers will have me come back. And so like I can show the changes over time. Like, how did this happen? If you're adding something, there had to be a reason why you're adding it and it should be tracked, all that kind of stuff. And, and a mature security program. And people shouldn't just be getting on a system and adding software. Do you have to update your policies and procedures or is that a training issue because somebody didn't understand that they needed to be doing that? You know, the other side, you know, everything's fixable. You know, you've heard the 80-20 rule. I I think with security, like 90%, like it's just basic stuff. If you do the basic stuff really well, you're going to be very secure. It makes it a little unglamorous, I think, for people. (laughs) Right. Well, being in the business so long, you know, that have some interesting stories. Uh, can you share some of those with yeah, us? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, you know, desensitized. I don't think anything would really shock me at this point. <laughs> Just see a lot of things, you know, like you go into a lot of places, you know, water leaking right next to servers, bullet holes and <laughs> things. Uh, I saw one place that got hit by a hurricane. Like it's just, you know, crazy stuff, keys, password, things unlocked, publicly accessible ports to networks. Just, you know, it's just so, so many things. And like I said, like everything's fixable. Once I started seeing like going to tank farms and terminals and all that, it just blends into the landscape. You don't really realize it's all over the place. They're all over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty desensitized. I don't get shocked that much. That's really interesting. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? Hey, I really appreciate it, Jacob. I really enjoyed talking with you today. I, I really think yeah. what you're doing is great. And so um, I'm proud to, to be a part of that. And thank you. You're welcome. Where can people find you? Find me on LinkedIn and my company, Sucrobus Incorporated. I love talking about this stuff. So mm-hmm. please reach out to me. And you know, if you're starting out and you have questions or you've been in the field or whatever, I'm willing to talk. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Jacob. Have a good day.